welcome to Esther Illusions episode. I always say that I'm going to edit the episode number in, but I never end up. So this is just, maybe it would be good to not announce what the episode title was, number was before, because who the hell knows. Anyway, we are here to do another uh, video game podcast, and I'm very excited for this one, because not only is it my favorite game system of them all, but a uh, dear friend is making his first appearance on the podcast. We have a college roommate of mine, Christian Montalvo, is here to discuss the N64. Christian, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I I am someone who feels very nostalgic about the N64. Um, It was the first console that, you know, I, I, you know, I have the Nintendo 64 like experience (laughs) on Christmas. And so it holds like a, it holds a very special place in my heart. And then, yeah, you and I wasted a lot of time playing this in college, despite it being, (laughs) despite it being a console that was, you know, decades old or maybe not multiple decades, but over 15 years old, over 20 years old, (laughs) I guess at the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Well, that's, uh, that just reminds us how old we are, but, um, yeah, I I had the N64. I also got it for Christmas. It was my second console. My parents had gotten me a PlayStation 1 the Christmas before. And as much as I loved Crash, as much as I loved Spyro, only one of my friends had a PlayStation. And I wanted Mario. And I wanted Super Smash Brothers and Episode 1 Racer and Rogue Squadron. And I wanted I wanted all of that. And... They weren't, you know, you couldn't have that on the disc. You needed those cute little cartridges. So the N64 really was the system where I went from being sort of a casual gamer as a, as a, like a six or seven year old, um, went from being a casual gamer to somebody who uh, really, really enjoyed this stuff. And it still holds a deep place in my heart. I have about, I think, 15 or 16 ca- game systems in my apartment, depending on how you want to count the 32X and the Sega CD. But um, I, it, it, it's the one that I brought West with me originally, along with the PlayStation 3, which was uh, still hadn't been replaced yet. Um, and that was also something that I used more for uh, DVDs, which is another medium that's totally dead. But uh, the N64 has always held a special place in my heart more so than all the other ones. And I'm so excited to talk about it. Yeah. And you brought up an interesting point, which I actually haven't really thought about until you mentioned the adorable little cartridges. But I think part of the integrity of the console is the fact that all the games that you played as a child, you know, not, you know, they, they, they lived on in these cartridges that are, uh, you know, most of them are pretty indestructible. I think everyone had an experience with some of these cartridges slamming them into the console itself blowing into the bottom of them or whatever but you know they they live on especially much better than a disc for like a playstation one so gosh i mean i never really thought about it and it's probably something that people knocked it for originally saying like oh the cd is the future but man these these cartridges are part of why i think the console does maintain so much um sort of romantic nostalgic value of the times that were had because you know you can pick up a copy of um i don't know super mario 64 and play the same version or you know piece of hardware that you played when you were a kid with all your your saved content and what have you yeah the 
and and also just in in a romantic fashion, the aesthetics of the N64 cartridge have totally aged better than um, its two competitors in the market were the PlayStation 1 and the Sega Saturn. PlayStation 1 figured out that the great video game case, if you're going to do a CD, is like a jewel case, like a CD case, but those are prone to cracks. And then the Sega Saturn has the ugliest fucking cartridge uh, cases on the planet Earth. They're the worst. They're the ugliest cases imaginable and if if you've never seen a sega saturn uh jewel case uh google it there i don't i think i have probably 25 of them and maybe one that isn't cracked they're huge they're bulky um and it's just it's it's ironic when you think about how the cartridge it was it was unpopular for developers and also just from a, a graphic standpoint because they held significantly less memory, like almost a tenth of the the memory as a disc. And yet, I mean, from a from a if we're if we're speaking strictly from like a nostalgic standpoint, um, a lot of the games that were on those cartridges sure beat a lot of uh, the the PlayStation games. I definitely I don't have sort of the same amount of reverence for. I mean, there's obviously a lot that are great, but. Just, just the just the notion of picking up like the Super Smash cartridge, having to sit in front of the TV for five minutes while you blew into it and picked it out of the machine and then put it back in three times because you heard somewhere at school that that was how you got it to turn on. And then the real answer is it turned on whenever the hell it wanted to turn on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's you know you can't really laugh about you know cleaning off a layer of film on a CD, whereas you can totally yeah. laugh about the the delicate touch it takes to get one of those cartridges to work. <laughs> Gotta like butter it up by a dinner first. Uh, oh yeah. Super Nintendo also is like a pain. I mean, it's, it's you, uh, whenever I'm like, whenever I sit and I want to, uh, decide to play a game, you know, the first, the first issue is you have to decide what you want to play. Then you have to try to figure out how to, how to get the thing to turn on. And then you have to figure out how to like, how to, how to play it. Cause all the, the other kind of beauty about the N64 is it had, for the first time, this big... And it's really, it's something that I think Christian and I both have a lot of nostalgia for because we can remember how just wild, especially something like a Super Mario 64 felt when instead of looking at like a top-down 2D graphics, and as great as the Super Nintendo is, you know, it's obviously it has its limitations, but to like look at the site of something like Peach's Castle and it's 3D and you can go left, you can go right, you can, you, you know, you can go whichever way you want. You can do whatever you want. And for the first time, it really felt like you were in control. You're in the game. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, beyond just the three dimensional space that you occupied in Super Mario 64, I, I would say that the, the color contrast too was part of what made it feel so much more immersive. It, like you got much more vivid colors on an N64 than you, and, and, you know, thereby more sort of engaging just because it's like bright and distracting. But, but if you compare that to like another launch game for the PS1, like Twisted Metal, like those colors are gray and sure it's three dimensional, but it, it just doesn't have the same pop and allure as an N64 did. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Also, from the 
when it came to the color scheme and the kind of graphics that uh, the PlayStation was trying to go for, it was definitely straddling the line between the Saturn, which did go for very good, colorful, arcade-style 2D graphics, and then the N64, which was just color on color on color, just right in your face. PlayStation trying to be more 3D than a Saturn, but also working within the, the confines of a disc versus those flash memory in, in the cartridge was certainly fascinating to see. And that's a good contrast. Too. I mean, Twisted Metal is a great game, but um, I, I actually was playing it, uh, the PlayStation Classic. I finally got mine up and working, and it's a fun game, but Super Mario 64, especially... For all the demented stuff you can do in Twisted Metal, I don't think there's anything as fun as in the Super Mario, the penguin level, the snow level, where you take the <laughs> little baby and you can ruin a mother's life in a, in two seconds by uh, not completing the mission, but by taking a penguin baby. And uh, it's cruel. It's cruel for a young child to have uh, that kind of power in their hands from a video game standpoint. Maybe Joe Lieberman was onto something when he was going after video games. Yeah, it was also pretty hard to watch Mario drown in front of you on the uh, on the sunken ship level. Uh, oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> coming to terms with the fact that oh, these cartoon characters need to breathe underwater. <laughs> oh, and if I don't make it to the surface, my anxiety not only boils over, but Mario just slowly sinks to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> that level will always I. The the sort of the open worldness of the N sixty four was something that really has always been endearing to me. But I used to go even when I wasn't trying to do the mission. I'd go on that level and I'd swim around, and I was obsessed with uh, Ungi, the the eel that lived there. And there's this there's this iPhone app that's like twenty questions for like any pop culture character you can think of, and it really is it really is thorough. You can do like eighties characters or whatnot, but. The time that I really it's called like Ask a Matt Genie or something. It's it's impressive. But um I got it to recognize the that eel from that level once, which was uh truly bizarre. But I really like just being able to uh I, I for all the for all the modern talk of uh you know Call of Duty or even Fortnite, which is probably a bit definitely a bit more playful than that, but um all the shooting and all the violence, and not that Mario doesn't have its fair share of violence, but if you wanted to go play that and just kind of run around and not really play the game, uh, there was a lot for you to do there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and then the the number of Easter eggs that were in there, and sort of what you know what what it meant to do a total complete in uh, Super Mario and meeting Yoshi and all that. Like, there was a lot to that game beyond just fighting bowser whereas you know i think I, I mentioned twisted metal earlier but i think a more fair comparison would have been the game that you mentioned crash bandicoot um oh yeah like just because it has you know it's, you know it's cartoony and but if you again if you look at those games like you mentioned the the open world and uh, the graphics I, it, they came out in the same year they kind of they they kind of revolve around a, a lot of similar concepts Super Mario 64 blew it out of the water. Well, yeah, because Crash isn't really a truth. It's it's 3D, but it's really run on a 2D engine. You can't um, you can't truly go all over the place. And I I love Crash. Crash 
Crash Bandicoot 2 and Spyro the Dragon were the first two video games I had. And Spyro is uh, spectacular for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spyro also was maybe the... I, I think there's a reason that Crash and Spyro were kind of held up as Sony's version of uh, Mario for that era because Spyro had a lot of spunk. But Nintendo games had a lot of uh, culture to them. Um even like something as stupid as Yoshi's Story, which is adorable, but you're 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 really the objective of the game is to find happiness. You eat fruit <laughs> right. to, to make Yoshi happy, and that's and then they sing this very beautiful song, which I wish I had the rights to so I could play. Um, <laughs> and then everyone could get all of the songs stuck in their head again. <laughs> they would sing like. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do anymore. No, no that cool. was great. Um, it's yeah, and so so like something even like Yoshi's Story was uh not that wasn't really 3D either, not not in a uh, true modern sense, but um, Nintendo Nintendo's always done a great job, and this has become more apparent nowadays with the sort of the the past few generations of you have. Sony and Microsoft kind of doing the same thing and you have Nintendo doing its own thing and there's not as much overlap like back then there were there were some you'd get some Nintendo 64 games that were available for PlayStation because of the memory differences the PlayStation version tended to be better but um Sega Saturn back then also was just kind of doing its own thing also so you had three sort of distinct cultural uh products but now, even even if you think about Sony's first-party content, they don't have a ton of it. They have a couple standout gems like uh, Horizon Zero Dawn or God of War, and Xbox obviously has uh, Gears of War and, and Halo. But uh, there's no cute there's no cute dinosaur. There's no cute pink puffball named Kirby. There's no rapping monkey like Donkey Kong. These are the and, and Banjo Kazooie also, who's now owned by Microsoft, but for really the era he mattered, Banjo Kazooie was a Nintendo icon. And actually, at, at the this episode won't air on the day we recorded it, but the news just broke today that Banjo Kazooie is being added to the Super Smash Brothers roster, which is really just kind of a nod to how great the Nintendo sixty four era was. Yeah, and, and it set the tone for a lot of what, and you, you hinted at this, but that console set it set the tone for a lot of what Nintendo would do to differentiate itself moving forward. Uh, you know, the country club sport games, Doctor or uh, Mario Golf and Mario Tennis, along with Mario oh, yeah. Party. I mean, that paved the way for Wii Sports and WarioWare, as and then also created platforms on which you know new versions of those games came out. Um, and and the whole idea of of like local party game, you know, started on the N sixty four with its four controllers as compared to two. Um, the style of play, the sort of fun, lightheartedness of the game, um, of the games that they they created, and and then that you see that kind of spin out and evolve into the Wii, which is I think pretty incredible. Yeah, and and Nintendo remains right now the only system, I mean, the only developer that cares about local multiplayer. With the Switch, they've made it so it's not even just four players anymore. You can play eight-player Smash, and you can even, you can have a person fully play 
on one one side of the the Joy-Con controllers they have that attach to the Switch and detach. For for the Super Nintendo era that had the Genesis and the Neo Geo and that kind of stuff, you had really two controllers, and then occasionally there were uh, a certain games that supported an add-on that could have additional slots. The PlayStation had one of those, but uh, very few games supported it, and I certainly didn't know anybody who had it growing up. But the N64 had, for the first time, you could sit... You could have a couple friends over and everybody could sit around and share a small sliver of a TV to which they would spend the entire time looking at the other uh, sections of the TV to cheat, (laughs) especially in Goldeneye. But it it, it is there's there's certainly a direct um, GameCube continued this of, of really caring about local multiplayer. And then by the time the Wii generation comes, where you have PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 focusing really the only multiplayer they really care about is uh, on the online market. Nintendo's always kind of lagged behind with that, but they're the ones saying, hey, that dynamic you had, the one that really is kind of fueling the, the nostalgia that leads us here to make this podcast, the notion that we have all these shared memories of our childhood and even in college of playing, sitting around and playing these multiplayer games, it's 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 something Nintendo's always done remarkably well. Yeah, and I would say what they've done in some ways, I don't know if intentionally, but by having this more intimate, localized culture around the games that they've done, and again, I think starting with the N64, but then evolving into things like, um, you know, the Pokemon, um, Pokemon Go, right? You know, the, the way by which Nintendo has approached multiplayer has really focused on local in-person interaction. And, and I think it's saved its culture. Whereas if you look at the attention that, um, you know, mass online uh, multiplayer games have gotten in, it, it's, it's fairly negative and the culture is, is broadly toxic. Um, and, and Nintendo skirted that entirely while still remaining successful, innovative and relevant. Yeah, they, especially with a thing like Mario Part. Well, I'm glad you brought up Pokemon Go because especially with the Nintendo 64, which had Pokemon Stadium, which took, again, kind of similar to what the Super Nintendo was, the N64. It was a sort of 2D big world, but still something that looked like a much older game. And with Pokemon Stadium you could see them actually like really battle. It was like you were watching an episode of the show. Right. And there is a direct parallel between that and uh, Pokemon Go. But also the, the, the N64 really in a lot of ways brought out these weird sort of subcultures of massive franchises like Pokemon Go. You, you didn't, I mean, uh, with Pokemon, you didn't just have Pokemon Stadium. You had something like Pokemon Snap, right. where you weren't going around catching Pokemon. You were going around throwing apples at them and then taking their pictures. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. Or you had Hey You, yeah. Or you had Hey You Pikachu, where you had a microphone that never worked really well, and you shouted commands which Pikachu would ignore. Something that you, you, using essentially technology that Apple's Siri has not perfected, but this is something that in the '90s they were trying to do, or something like. Star Wars, where you have um, 
there's a I, there have been some really great Star Wars arcade games. One of my favorite Star Wars games of all time is Star Wars Arcade, which I have for the Sega 32X. It it's it's beautiful, and it actually I, I've been making comparisons between that game and the uh, Smuggler's Run ride at Disneyland. But when it came to Rogue Squadron, especially as a kid, when when we hadn't seen stuff like this before. Or, you know, your only exposure to something as big as Star Wars would be on a, like a cassette tape. Or if you got lucky, you know, you could go see like a showing of it in the theaters. But for Rogue Squadron, you can actually fly like like fly an X-Wing and it looks like you're really flying. Like you're really part of the, the action in something like Shadows of the Empire also, which was the I think the first Star Wars game to come out on the N64. It was. was yeah, it it threw you into this whole new story and and you're like wait a second because shadows of the empire was a broader it's a it it's something that deserves its own podcast episode. <laughs> just just what between the comic books for dark horse and the novel and you're sort of, it's sitting there thinking like are they making like i just remember back before like the internet really when or in the early days of the internet, when people would talk about it, and you're like, "Is it a movie? Is it is it is it a prequel? Like, what 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 is this thing?" And it was cool. Um, and this is back when it's it's like the I always talk to gaming people about this all the time. You don't really hear people saying, "Well, aren't you a little old for video games?" You don't really hear that anymore. Do you hear that? No, no, I I, I don't. I think. I think, you know, video games as a market has matured to a standpoint or to a point where it's now there is a, uh, a sub market for every generation. Um, and of course there's overlap, but no, I don't hear that anymore. It's, it's interesting to think about because I mean, especially I, in the, the time period that Christian and I both would have had an N64, we were both quite little, um, Getting new game, experiencing new games, you couldn't just look at a trailer on the internet. If you were lucky, you saw one on TV, but, or you, you saw it in like a gaming magazine, or you really saw it at like your friend's house. And then if you wanted that game, you had to do well in school, <laughs> you had to save up your allowance, or it, it, like acquiring new games also, just from a cultural standpoint. It, it's so different. Whereas like nowadays, a game comes out, a month later, they've dropped the price to like, 20 bucks and you, you, I, I don't even I, I the mar- to see to see where the market is now versus how I used to like get new games back then continues to fascinate me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a console today or a platform today where you have the same amount of overlap between, you know, friend to friend of what games you played growing up. I mean, if somebody were to pull up the list of, you know, the top selling and 64 games, I mean, with the exception of a few near the top, you know, the, the number of copies sold in the top 25, top 30, they're fairly close, which is really interesting because it says that, you know, we, we all grew up around playing a lot of the same games. Whereas today, you know, there are a handful of sensational video games that will dominate the marketplace, but you don't see the same amount of breadth platform to platform. And of course, PCs are changing that because you know, you can, you have a lot more backwards compatibility and you also have, um, you know, it's a lot more availability of different games to play. But what I think is interesting is that, you know, the games that I played on the N64 as compared to anyone else 
who had that console is very, very similar. Um, you had a lot of the same games. And so the experience you had getting immersed in Zelda or Pod Racer, you know, they were they were very similar to what other people would have shared um, be, because of uh, just, again, the, the sort of way that we consumed games, whether that was, as you said, saving up your allowance to uh, go get one. Or for me, it was like riding my bike down to Blockbuster <laughs> and renting one until I had spent, yeah. uh, probably spent more money <laughs> renting a game than buying it in some cases. That you, maybe the one um, redeeming quality of the N64 versus like the PlayStation when I would, because uh, PlayStation used memory cards and the N64, only a couple did. Mm-hmm. I think I have a couple of them here, but uh, very few of their games required the use of a memory card. Right. But um, yeah. seeing save files on, on like PlayStation or GameCube for games that you'd rented and you're like, I can't play this right now. That's... Uh, or, or just trying to rush through a game because with like a Genesis game or a Super Nintendo game, uh, like a like a Mario or like a Sonic or a Super Mario World. Well, Super Mario World, you had save files and all that, but um, usually you you know you just played until it was game over and then you started again from the beginning. <laughs> right, right. And N sixty four really started to change that, like. Uh, the the larger than life feel of something, even like uh, Ocarina of Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, where you're not so much on levels as you are. What part of the story are you at? Where video games are becoming more than just a button masher. This has a narrative. It has a. It has a. It, it can draw emotions out of you. Yeah. Not, not just from frustration. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I I remember saving certain sections of Ocarina of Time into the three available <laughs> save slots that I had or whatever it was, you know, I, where I, so oh, I yeah. can replay, um, you know, replay a certain, certain part of that game. Um, you know, some of my favorites were like the fire temple. Like I could play that over and over again and, and not get bored of it. Cause the music was great. The boss was interesting. Um, or, um, yeah, I mean, just or just revisiting something like going back into the Lost Woods as a kid to meet all of the different characters that live there. I mean, that was fun, too, just in and of itself. Um, so, yeah, you're right. The, the immersive storytelling as a result of the technology, the ability to maintain these save files on a local cartridge was 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 awesome. And Nintendo has always done humor very well. Uh, Donkey Kong 64 is a deeply funny yeah. game. Uh, Banjo-Kazooie is a very funny game. Uh, Conker's Bad Fur Day is the least Nintendo of Nintendo games in terms of like featuring a cute animal. I'm sure there's, yeah, there's plenty of Resident Evil games for Nintendo, but Conker's was, and all of uh, Donkey Kong and Conker's and a lot of games were made by Rare, a company now owned by Microsoft, but they did Banjo, Donkey Kong, Conker's, Perfect Dark, GoldenEye, and this gem that I don't think Christian's played, but it's called Jet Force Gemini, which you ran around shooting guns at giant bugs, and it was it was wild, and it was fast-paced, and all of those games were just so wildly different. It's hard to think that a company like Rare 
I'll put them all at once for the same console in an exclusive fashion where you couldn't buy them for anything else. And they were immersive and they they tried with you and they made you feel. And then you went to school the next day and all you could think about was playing them. And it was just like it. It's hard to even nowadays the immersiveness of uh, like Far Cry or Assassin's Creed or Fallout, all of that. Um I play Fallout, uh, oftentimes I'm kind of depressed afterwards. <laughs> Just because of the intensity of the feels that, that results from playing it? Yeah. It's brutal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like playing a video game version of The Road, the book uh, Cormac McCarthy. Right, right. It, the desolation's pretty intense in that game. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I guess the, really, the, as a console, the N64 exists in such stark contrast because it had... So many colorful characters and happy characters, and it, it's really the it's the system I tend to turn to the most when I'm when I have people over and I'm not trying to play like a fighting game. Obviously, the uh, the 2D fighting genre did not have its finest hour on the N64, but um, Super Smash Brothers kind of changed I, I, as as. You know, people still uh, gush over Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter still continues to sell copies, but kind of by the Super Nintendo Genesis, uh, the genre, it couldn't... I mean, Street Fighter 3 is still Alpha's great. A lot of the Marvel superheroes, those are fun games. But Super Smash Brothers took the fighting game like that and it changed it in a way that is maybe more inviting more also more immersive in the sense that um if you're playing like a street fighter and you have ryu and ken going at each other an idiot can beat an experienced player it's not that hard but super smash super smash was supposed to be you're supposed to pick your character um people always hated when i played because i always wanted to use rent i i liked using random as the level i didn't want anyone to have an advantage on the, the the level but um and then you go in there, and it's and and if you know what you're doing, you're gonna make it to right. the final two. I, and I a couple things on Smash. So totally agree that Smash is a great example of how the N64 is one of the more welcoming consoles or platforms to a much broader audience. Um, you know, I could play Mario Party with somebody who doesn't play any video games at all, and and Smash definitely had that effect. The the other thing that Smash did is it it really solidified the cast of characters that made up the Nintendo universe in a way that I don't think another game had done before. Um, you know, pulling in and, and you know they continued to do moving yeah. forward. So it did a lot for the Nintendo brand um, uh, to just kind of heighten that. And then yeah, it, it was a fighting game that offered a level of finesse that you didn't see in the games that came prior. I mean, with the bubble shield, it, it, it you know, it introduced a level of defense that I don't think a lot of games, um, you know, really, really had, or a lot of fighting games really had. Um, and I might be totally wrong about that, but the great yeah. players at that game wow. you know, started to use some of the defensive tactics. And I, I didn't see that as much from other games prior to, it's harder to harder to pull. I I and with a lot of the Neo Geo games, you can block, but it's harder to time. And it the the matches are quick. There's what Super Smash Brothers did was it took that kind of concept 
and kind of blended it with the more long form sort of sense of of competition that Mario Kart 60 something like Mario Kart 64 had where it wasn't just like a blink you know it it wasn't meant to mirror you going to the arcade and bashing buttons with a stick for your 25 cents worth you were playing a game that was crafted for a home home audience with a con- with a Controller that, you know, had, uh, had a lot of buttons to it, which is also something to talk about. The N64 controller is probably, I, I mean, maybe it, w- the Wii, Wii U controllers are obviously singular and kind of their own thing, but, um, N64 controller is, looks pretty much least like a controller out of any of the non-motion style controllers. It's a very weird, it's very weirdly shaped. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's almost alien, um, especially with like, Looks like the McDonald's logo. <laughs> yeah, it does. Or or an M, also known as an M. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, what's funny is is I think for most people who pick that up for the first time, it, it almost took some getting used to, but it, it did kind of find a way into becoming natural. Um, even you know, the different ways of holding it, whether you were using the D-pad or the joystick. I, I think it was kind of interesting the way that it took advantage of of you know, again, different different handling uh which other controllers certainly didn't at that time and that joystick i mean putting aside the i i have two n64 controllers with the joysticks that aren't shot to hell and i am so loathsome to let anybody who isn't like doesn't know what they're doing play with them because like a a a n64 controller with a joystick that's like survived the 90s is like is, is worth worth a lot because they're just they're so floppy mostly from some of those mario party games. right but um that joystick was such a liberator in a lot of ways the the playstation classic that just came out they didn't even include the analog sticks from the playstation controller and by the time i got a playstation my controllers had the analog sticks and i have an analog controller for the sega saturn it doesn't work on every game but that makes a big difference if you're going out there to play an open world style game. The ability to not just, it's not just up, down, left, right. It's like sort of left, right, you know, the, 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 I mean, it, it, it's not rocket science that, uh, <laughs> an, an analog stick was, was bigger, but for something like, uh, I just, it, it, it created so many fascinating, like whenever you started a game, you had to realize that, the controllers were going to be the controls were going to be very individualistic to that game. Like there Donkey Kong 64 and Mario Kart 64 are not that different stylistically. And yet controlling Mario is a, it's a very different experience than controlling Donkey Kong. Mario is a lot more responsive. It's a lot more jerky. You'd have a lot of times where Mario would fall on a level and you're like, what the hell did I do wrong? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost telling about Nintendo's like forward lookingness that they launched the game with the you know joystick as a part of the controller, whereas PlayStation did not. Um, it, it, it says that they they almost knew that this was the direction that video games were taking, and and, and how important it was to get ahead of the curve. Um, not to say that PlayStation didn't realize that games were going to become three dimensional and more immersive, but that was. That was what almost as if what they were waiting for. It's like, let's get to that level and launch our console with that in mind, uh, down to the physical design of the controller. Um, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, the Sega thinking that the market would still basically be geared toward fighting games was a major part of why they failed as a company. Their their inability to see Mario-style games as the future and Mar- Mario, Super Mario 64-style uh, 3D platformer. And whenever, it, it's funny, I read a lot, I spend a lot of time on uh, gaming historian websites and all of that stuff just because... I don't know, it, it fascinates me. But um, you see a lot of like derision geared toward the, the collecting nature of a lot of N64 games, a lot of the platformers where you'd go around and collect things. I find that format very endearing. I, I like going around exploring a cute level and having a little bit of combat is fine, but um. All the people who really love Metal Gear Solid, I tip my hat to them, but um, I don't want to hide. I want to run out and whack people with a banana. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and, and it's it's funny, the N64 does that probably better than any other console. I mean, I remember playing Banjo-Kazooie and almost feeling shameful about how much I liked how goofy of a game this was. <laughs> like, my, my older brother would be like, I can't believe you went to, you walked all the way to Blockbuster rented that trash again <laughs> and you're listening to them talk nonsensically it. to one another like it was like a baby game is how it felt it, it felt like it was for toddlers because it was so silly but yeah it had that addictive collecting feel to it you're exploring these really bizarre worlds and and yeah that's what you want you want to you want this sense of escapism and fantasy and if you're going to be doing you know some sort of virtual reality it's something Nintendo has done uh, very well, but Nintendo I, just just the 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 sheer. And I I went back and I played Paper Mario the other day, um, and by the other day I mean like six months ago. Um, the the writing in that game is also it's something it's something the newer ones have continued, but um, it's hilarious. And Banjo Kazooie is similarly just goofy, but. And it, it, it amazes me to know end that Rare as a company was doing that at the same time as Perfect Dark or GoldenEye or, well, not totally at the same time, but they're making tons of different things. And just the sheer fact that we can talk about the party aspect of N64, which is something that, I mean, I, I'm sure there's like one or two party style games for like a PlayStation. I don't, can't really name them off the top of my head, but... That racing, you could play tennis, you could play golf, you could do all sorts of different things. And it wasn't like there was this one singular genre that it was going for, which is something that, at least with Nintendo, with the Wii U, one thing they were certainly, as a company, they seemed very uniformly headed more toward doing side HD side-scrollers, sort of more like the Super Nintendo era. And it was weird to see that kind of cultural switch when Nintendo's always really done well when it focused on right. the spread. Well, I mean, I think it it's interesting because these games almost act, you know, with the introduction of, you know, these large, very highly detailed three-dimensional worlds as like a sort of new way by which you play it. I mean, these games begin to feel like, um, almost like board games to me. I know this is a very odd comparison. I don't know how you feel about this, but... There's like there is there is something to playing Scrabble, even in an era where there are all these much more complicated, advanced board games out there. And I think 
it, it, there's a, it's like a nostalgia to it and it's a simplicity to it where you 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 want to keep playing the N64 for some reason so you can still pull it out. And then yeah, I I, I totally agree with the idea that you said about um, how the N64 became a a console in which there was no predefined sort of type of game that it was pigeonholing itself into. I, I, something I wanted to bring up was that N64, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, really pioneered extreme sport games, like with 1080 snowboarding, Wave Race 64, Tony Hawk Pro Skater, obviously. But it's it's kind of, it's incredible that, you know, it had such a wide breadth of different styles, gameplays, and, and interests that it appealed to. Yeah, plus something like NFL Blitz, which was um, a a sports game ostensibly about a mainstream sport, but with a gameplay that was like totally wild. Or or the way like Motocross is another example of kind of what you're talking about, where they're shining a light on uh, not not a mainstream sport, but NFL Blitz. Uh, that well, that game a kind of that's like the one game where if if I'm like locked in, I'm like super super into yes, it and emotional. I know um, this very well. <laughs> Mario Party, I play like Littlefinger, like an assassin. I try to be calm and collected. NFL Blitz, I'm yeah, just like, it's pretty raw. <laughs> I, and I, I, yeah, I throw, yeah, and it's it's just just wild because it's so out there, but um. There's sports games. I mean, I've never really part part of me. I, I've always, in terms of like where I've really enjoyed my sports games, I've really, I kind of like almost like the Super Nintendo, where that's it's the graphics are so old and dated. Like in in college, uh, a lot of our roommates would play uh, NHL or Chell as they referred to it as. Um, I always liked like the NHL and the Super Nintendo, but that was just me. Um, uh, maybe that's not a, as fun a game to pack a lip while playing. Um, but uh, the Mario uh, with with um, with 1080 snowboarding, uh, th- these are games that you. There's only so much you can do in terms of like really being out there with a like game on the original Nintendo. And they had a couple that kind of fit the bill of sort of strange. One of my favorite sports games is the original ice hockey for the original Nintendo, where. It, it looks kind of like a, a more complex version of Pong. Very stupid, but it's very fun. If you have a Switch and you have the Nintendo Online thing, I totally recommend playing that because it's fun. But the sports games really were... Wave Race was very... Uh, I mean, who the, what kind of kid, especially in for speaking in terms of like a, a majority of like the American population, knows what, the, what, what sport Wave Race is based off of? Like jet ski. <laughs> right. It's just like it's I I've seen people on jet skis. I've never seen jet ski racing no. anywhere in my life. And yeah, you could you could play a fun game about that or 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 on a more on a broader scale for the N64, um the notion of kart yeah. racing. How many people like really have ever gone go kart racing? Or I wonder would I mean, I'm sure go kart racing be as sensational as it was it for the N64? <laughs> <laughs> exactly like who who wants to go go go-karting and not like simulate throwing bananas off the side of your uh it it it, it took it took a it took a, a a real life sport uh using sport in more of an air quote style saying um 
and made it very fascinating. And there were there were dozens of cart knockoffs. We had Disney Muppet Kong. Cart. You had um, Disney Disney Magical. I think Rare made that. Um, yeah, Diddy. I, there's just so many. There's even like an Arthur Arthur the Aardvark style <laughs> cart game for PlayStation. It's so primitive that you can't do split screen. You have to wait your turn. You have to go one at a time. No way. Uh, it's, it's <laughs> very stupid, but um, it's cute. Uh, everybody was doing that. And and kart racing has still kind of there. They announced a remake of Crash Team Racing, which is a kart game, which was very good. Uh, I liked it as a kid, but um, you mentioned earlier just like the, the fact that so many kids uh, all had the same games. I love that the N64 allows me to joke about like going through Moo Moo Farm. Yeah. Or the, <laughs> or the level with the train. I forget that one off the top of my head. Um, you know, the one in oh, no. the one in the Wild West. Yeah, I do. What? Oh, gosh. Like the Western level. Yeah. And I like Mario Kart 8 a lot. I think it's a, I think it's a great game. But uh, and Double Dash is a fun game. But um, nothing compares, honestly. And I, I'm sure there's plenty. If, if you were, if there are people who are a little older than Christian and I are, um, maybe they would feel this kind of nostalgia for either the original Super Mario Kart or like an F Zero, which was where Captain Falcon came from. But um, I mean, I've played those. I, I like F Zero a lot, but um. Mario Kart, I mean, just, and also just the sheer ways in Mario Kart that you could screw other people went right, up and right. away I mean, above the Super Nintendo version. Exactly. And you, you bring up something else was just like the elasticity of that game too. When you introduce in the randomness that yeah. a lot of the Mario games and other N64 games built into it to just keep things interesting, keep the replay value high. Um, I, I'm going to have to just say this because I, I, I imagine someone was screaming calamari desert as we were okay, <laughs> thank you. struggling there. Yeah, it's no problem. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you could play, I mean, you could, you could, you could be extremely experienced at Mario Kart, which is a ridiculous thing to say, but, uh, <laughs> but a, a lightning could, could ruin everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, and then totally flip the results. Um, which which is great. Yeah, if you're on the beach and you don't uh, hit the jump into the secret cave, if you miss and you just kind of like fall and you're at the edge of the waterfall, you're in trouble. You got the game on <laughs> yeah. the you got the game on the line, and you are not getting on the podium. That's right. And Another, I mean, like I, I and I feel the same. Like I I really like pole position as a racing game. And if you compare that to, to like F1 and, and the other racing games of, of generations prior, I mean, it, it doesn't have the, in, the, 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 the variability in it. Um, right. You know, the only thing that might throw you for a loop would be some sort of glitch <laughs> that happened on, yeah. on one of those consoles. Well, well, Whereas with Mario Kart, or Mario Kart it, you know, you had that randomness. Well, in the era of AI also in that... Um a lot of a lot of games, especially in the Super Nintendo, I mean, they still some of them still face this problem now. Is uh, actually Mortal Kombat just the Mortal Kombat Eleven got in trouble for this, but uh, the concept of uh, rubber band AI kind of refers to how the computer will adjust to how to your level of play 
which is an innovative concept and, and really mattered a lot for the N64 era where uh, with something like Mario Kart, you're having eight, eight players and only four of them could be human. Uh, often it would be less, but with Rubber Band AI, uh, an issue that happens sometimes is if you're already a skilled player, uh, sometimes depending on the circumstance, and thankfully Mario Kart 64 didn't run into this problem, but other games would have it. Sometimes it would be almost impossible for you to beat them. In uh, 007 Nightfire for GameCube, uh, if you play on the random weapon setting against the bots and it's snipers, sometimes you are pretty fucked. Um, but uh, that's, that's kind of the fun of it in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was something like, you know, I, I noticed, and I think it's partially just because of the generation of video games that we're talking about that I grew up with. But, you know, N64 pioneered that as well. Um, in a way that I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't notice with other games or consoles at the time. The the ability to screw your friends over, um, we should probably talk a bit more about because between GoldenEye, Mario Party, Mario Kart 64, I'm sure there's plenty of others, but um, you could put friendships in some pretty awkward positions if you were in a group. And there was somebody who you were just like screen looking or something, and you were just whip, just whooping their ass. Um, that's a lot of pride on the line. It's Pride Month, and this is uh, not one of the uh, pride themed episodes that we had planned, but we should talk about pride because it's important. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this is the pride that people are, are talking about celebrating. But yeah, your 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 ability to perform in a certain video game or maintain your position amongst your friends as the greatest Mario party player or the best of the golden eye players. You, I mean, you could, if you wanted to have a singular focus and just screwing someone, you absolutely could like Mario Kart. You could sit on a level with a red shell and just wait <laughs> for yeah. someone to come by and end them. And then, yeah, if I, if you really wanted to, you could just, proximity mine somebody in in golden eye and that would be the end of them and then in mario party i you know in each of those different mini games there is just an endless way to screw people yeah or, or team up against someone it's to steal awesome. their stars steal their coins i in grad school even i'd have friends over and i'd warn people i'm like you want to come for my star i will spend the rest of the game coming after you and did they take my star no they took somebody else's star <laughs> And they look. It, it's like it's like, and and there's a human. It, it it there's a human element to it. Super Mario. I mean, Mario Party is often very defined by, especially with Mario Party two and three. I, I guess the random stars did happen in the uh, first one, but you could just be walking and some guy discovers a hidden block, and the hidden block's got the star, and then the asshole's in the lead and didn't do anything. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it was just one big. The, the winner could totally be random or chance time could change everything. And you go in there and it's like the Hunger Games, practically. Yeah, no, it really was. And yeah, I mean, anyone, anyone you were playing with had an opportunity to win at Mario Party, which made it such a great game. Great, great game. I, I, so plenty of people love playing Mario Party. I mean, uh, Mario Kart under the influence of alcohol. To me... There is no greater activity than drunk Mario Party in terms of like playing a drunk game because maybe I, I like maybe playing Risk, but that's because I just get to 
bring out my inner Stannis Baratheon, but uh, I get to do that with, with Mario, with Mario party too. Um, my birthday a couple of years ago, I'd gone out with a couple of friends for some drinks and I woke up the next morning, very hungover. And it wasn't until a half hour later that I realized that I had played among my worst Mario party games ever. And I'd lost cause I had come, I've been just a total mess, but, um, I was very pleased to learn that like that uh, I had still been as ruthless as ever playing that game. And when you're, when you're dealing with something like dizzy dancing or facelift or something, you don't come to, you don't come to mess around. You play to win. Always. Yeah. No, you, 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 everybody shows up because <laughs> the premise is simple enough for all those games that, you know, there, there, there's not as much, I guess, you know, there's not as much you need to learn about it. It's, it's, you, you can just use the mechanics to execute, uh, or yeah. not in, in the case of, of, of drunken Mario party, well, <laughs> it's just a good spend point. your time screwing others. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a good point that you bring up because that's something that the, the later installments in the series have, have really struggled with. Uh, they make the game more complex or even in later Mario parties, you have to travel around the map as a, as, as is one in part of the same car. Uh, it's it, it's very weird, and I I haven't liked it. And people, are, yeah, it's always whenever you're dealing with talking about video like video game history as a whole, um, the nostalgia factor is always one that's uh, difficult because you know we talk about an era that we grew up in. You could get people just sort of going get off my lawn about like the Commodore sixty four. Uh, Stot era or or the Turbovax or uh, Atari or that kind of stuff, but when it comes to Mario Party in particular, especially the N sixty four really perfected it. It had such a perfect learning curve uh, that rewarded repeat playing, but a, a novice could play it and have fun. I think that's not as true nowadays. I think sometimes there is kind of a complexity factor there. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think that's exactly right. I what I noticed too is that it 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 almost yeah it was almost like perfected maybe in Mario Party two and then it started to tip as it added and introduced more complexity into it unnecessarily. I think so. well, they, they, Toad wasn't the um, host of the third, which bothered me. I have the first three here. Well, that's and very I, controversial. I, well, I, yeah, I never really warmed to the later one. I've always thought about they they put out a new one for Switch, and I thought about it, but. I mean, maybe you think about like necessity being the mother of invention. I mean, if now uh, now maybe the best multiplayer game on Switch is more Splatoon, which is one of their few really successful new franchises that they've created. And I like Splatoon, but um, it local multiplayer is not something these people are focusing on, and it's it it's such like an underrepresented market because. So much of uh, so much of today's modern conversation, all of that is how to find happiness, how to find connection, all of that. I, and I, th- I think that a game like that was was something that really succeeded at getting people to spend time together. Yeah, and creating camaraderie and and also like healthy competition. I, I know we talked about this a moment ago, but like you know, a lot of the community and culture and online games don't have that same sort of interpersonal respect that, that you get when you play something locally. Um, I'm sure there's, there's probably a broad audience of people that 
you know, would think about LAN games or LAN nights versus playing, um, you know, an online game. There, there is something very, very distinct right. to that. <laughs> and you, you tend to respect each other a little bit more when you're in the room with somebody. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, what Pokemon Go would then did with that is is incredible. I, I look forward to kind of what Nintendo might do in the future as it, it begins to innovate on on sort of what it means to play as a group, play video games as a group. Well, they've got a Nintendo Labo, the cardboard boxes. What? I have to look this up. Yeah, look up Nintendo Labo. You can, they're building yourself cardboard boxes. Oh, you know, I, I totally seen this. Yeah, yeah, very cool. <laughs> I, I think that's great. I'm all about it. Bring on Nintendo Legos. <laughs> Terra, Terra does not, uh, not support that game, but um, it, when it comes to the N64, all the things it did well, it did single player very well. I like, when I sit down to play a game, I I go through phases where I sit and I play Battlefield for way too often. I've, Call of Duty has never been my jam. I when when Christian and I were in college, we would uh, we played through Resident Evil Five in uh, my bedroom, which had a TV, because our other roommates would play Call of Duty ad nauseum all the time, and it wasn't very fun. Uh, it wasn't very fun to run around there. Uh, those games just get tiresome versus a story is something that um, Zelda has so much. Re- Arcarina of Time has so much replay value to it. Right. Some people could say, sure, Call of Duty has replay value. Gun game. I don't really agree with that. Were you a big fan of Call of Duty? No, no. I mean, I respect it, but I am not a big fan of it. Um, and, you know, I do think and this is something that's talked about a lot but you know the market is moving away from away from a good story and towards online games because it's more profitable right um you can some of them don't even have uh single player modes anymore yeah right i mean there are of course games that break away from that 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 you know do very well um economically you know they they sell a lot of copies and still tell a great story my one of my favorites is the last of us but you know, oh, that's a yeah, yeah. classic. But I, the point being is that you know, they you it's hard, I, you cannot get people's attention and maintain eyeballs and focus in a game like that. Um, I'm not sure I would pick it up again um, and, and play it. Um, I I, and I don't know. I, I think there there could be a way to use maybe in the way that Pokemon Go did AR and VR to create immersive environments in which you want to just keep going back and reliving certain experiences that you have in there. Well, yeah, but that's something that Skyrim has uh, done very well. Right. Yeah. Breath of the Wild. uh, Similarly, but um, it also just begs the question of with a with a Call of Duty or even something like an Assassin's Creed, which comes out basically every year. You're not buying a game that you're you're probably thinking about playing 25 years from now. I often call my N64 the greatest birthday, I mean, a uh, greatest Christmas gift I ever got, because I still use it. To this day, I still play it a fair amount. I, I was playing Tony Hawk. I had 20 minutes to kill before doing an episode. I played a couple of quick rounds of Tony Hawk. Um, video games as a as a something that's supposed to hold up for 20 years. 
it's so difficult to make a medium or, or, or create a piece of art that and think that far ahead into the future because you're really just kind of making something for the moment. But I, I, I always just think about how many people when we were in college had N64s around and you, you'd see, I mean, some people had other systems, but not that many. And I, I think about these kids just playing like Fortnite on their phone or on their computer or something, not, to, not drinking warm beer together or warm, uh, shitty mixed, not even sure you can call them mixed drinks. Um, it's a communal aspect missing. And maybe they would have had that later on with the PlayStation 2 or the GameCube, but um, it feels like a generational thing that doesn't need to be a generational thing. I guess the Wii also would, would, would fit into that. You know what I mean? I do. I, I'm thinking, <laughs> I had a strange thought, which is that like N64 cartridges almost feel like the vinyl of <laughs> of uh, video games. I, I, it's like they're, the physical nature of them. I mean, of course, they're not going to, I'm not going to live on in the same exact way. Like I don't see myself passing down a collection of N64 cartridges, like my grandfather giving me his old vinyl, but, <laughs> but there is something about the timelessness of them, their integrity and the way that they kind of live on, um, despite improvements in technology, um, and, and the video game medium as, as a storytelling medium or as a, as a competitive medium, it, it, they, they, they stand the test of time. Yeah, and it's 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 difficult to think about when the when the PlayStation Classic was first announced, one of the big questions surrounding it was cuz the Nintendo Classic and the Super Nintendo Classic have both sold very very well and they've been very well received and people have loved them. The question was then how much nostalgia do we have for the early days of the Polygon era? Uh, 3D and it's something that Nintendo has not addressed yet with the N64 classic which I imagine would probably be a pretty big hit it's hard to say that the PlayStation classic was a bust because of that because the system was basically something they loaded 20 games on it they left every security backdoor basically open wide open saying you want more games feel free to hack them we're not like Within a day of the PlayStation coming out, every tech magazine was saying, oh, people already hacked it. <laughs> right. Um, and it, it was it was essentially Sony's licensed emulator. That's really what they put out. But um, the nostalgia factor in terms of it, it's 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 funny, the comparison to vinyl, because while I probably don't see a world where I'm passing my cartridges on to uh, offspring either. <laughs> Whenever I've moved apartments, I always had that that one. I mean, I, I gradually, as I lived longer and longer on the West Coast, whenever I'd go home, I'd basically come back with another game system until really the only ones left are ones that I can play through backwards compatibility or that my sister would play. But now I basically have all of them here. But the cartridges, it... It, it's always fun. I have them in a, like most people, I had mine basically in a bucket. And I, uh, it's, it's fun to kind of like, not, not literally dump it over to knock everything over, but just like to dig it through and, and to see all the certain things that are in there. And it's, it's very exciting. Yeah. I have, um, a drawer in my, in my house now. And it, you know, it's, it's a prime drawer on my media console. 
<laughs> and it's it's full of N64 cartridges, like perfectly organized. <laughs> I don't play very often. I actually don't think I've played maybe in like a year or so. No, I picked it up recently and plugged it in, played a little bit of um, Zelda. But, you know, it, it, it just it, it maintains this very central location in my home. And I, I love opening the drawer, hearing the clank of the cartridges kind of clicking against one another <laughs> and then browsing them, thinking about, you know, the the oh, the times I had with this console. <laughs> yeah, it it. It's a very, it's a beautiful, I mean, some people can get uh, drunk on nostalgia. Uh, I tend to, when I'm, when I'm reviewing movies, ones that are just kind of trying to play toward that, I tend to roll my eyes at, and yet, Nintendo has had so many highs as a company. They've had a lot of lows, but they're kind of riding on a little bit of a high with the Switch. Uh, The Wii is really... The Wii and the original Nintendo are their two that were most commercially successful. Domestic, in terms of overall market, the N64 sold about 30, a little over 30 million. The PlayStation sold 100 million, and yet it, it's, 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 a, it's a complicated idea when you're trying to gauge the popularity of something based on what your friends thought, because it's the sample sizes and all of that are skewed. There's definitely so much more... N64 nostalgia than play, than PlayStation 1. It's just like a fact. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping maybe in the era of cloud games that you will get to a point where these all these games kind of come back to and and can live on um, just because... Well, they... Go ahead. Yeah, well, they... Um, I was talking about it earlier. I did a... I just asked on Twitter what wanted to ask my followers what their favorite games were just to like get the responses uh in case you're wondering a lot of mario kart a lot of banjo kazooie um but i was thinking about donkey kong 64 because uh late in 2018 i know i told christian about this when it happened but um in england where the transgender rights scene is uh quite messy if you're a fan of the show we had our podcast about that episode about that with dr adrian up, but um, one of the chief instigators of the anti-trans campaign there is a comedy writer named Graham Linehan, who created the shows The IT Crowd and Father Ted. But one, the YouTuber H Bomber guy had gotten so fed up with his crap that he did a charity stream of Donkey Kong 64 for the British transgender charity Mermaids, which deals with transgender youth. And he raised... Over $300,000, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, and a lot of other people went on the stream to talk about it, Chelsea Manning, and um, the notion of beaver bother, of being bothered by the beavers in Donkey Kong 64, and they're annoying, they're very difficult, they're almost impossible to beat. That became a meme in 2019 of a of a N64 game that, I, I don't see it really as one of the, the it, it's, in probably my top five, but I don't think it's really in, in the top five. You have an obscure N64 game that's now once again kind of part of internet subculture in, I guess the year would have been 2018. Isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, I try to compare it back to the PlayStation 1. I think like pointy Tomb Raider boobs kind of lives on. <laughs> and... Yeah, I mean, Crash and Spyro are very popular. Uh, they have they have a lot of uh, nostalgia 
games like uh, Gran Turismo or Twisted Metal. Uh, I mean, Resident Evil was available for all three, so it's kind of it's kind of hard to say where the definitive one. I mean, of the original Resident Evils, the definitive versions are actually probably on the Dreamcast, which was not technically in the same generation as the N64, but there was some overlap. Uh, the Nintendo 64 was basically like 96 to 2000. Dreamcast was basically like 98 to 2000. But uh, it's interesting just to just to think about how many... We're, we're never going to see a world where... I mean, even like, systems like the Wii U and the Wii and the GameCube all had strong libraries. But... Even if you look at, uh, like, if you compare their libraries to the output of Rare as a single company, what they were doing for the N64, Rare could basically take on an entire systems catalog on their own. It's just incredible. Yeah. Trying to think of other ways that, like, N64 has continued to live on, um, you know, represented by its, or as attributed to by its nostalgia. Speedrunning would be another area where it's like, why do we just keep seeing people turn back to the N64 again and again to try to get their times down as short as possible? I mean, it, it, I would say probably of the top 10 speedrun games that are most competitive or where you have like the most individual contributions to, the N64 has got to be up there with, with a large majority of the games that people are just obsessed with, <laughs> even today. Right, it, it well they um Super Mario sixty four with the Koopa the where you had to raise him up the mountain. I think there were a couple levels like that. Yeah. But, um, it was kind of ingratiated into the uh game itself. And it's it's bizarre to see the I mean I've seen people do playthroughs even of Breath of the Wild, but um the 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 immersiveness of it. I mean games ga- games for systems like the Super Nintendo they were fairly unforgiving to errors. You could only make one or two mistakes, or then you are kind of uh, done. N64 with Mario, if you could take a beating and then go into the water for two seconds and you'd be fine. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it wanted you to keep playing. It wanted you to be immersed. It, I, I'm, I'm sure they recognize that as you're playing, um, you know, Super Mario on the Super Nintendo... You know, every time you die, it's it's a very, very harsh break in the game when you go back to that map. Whereas when you play Super Mario 64, yeah. there are countless ways to, yeah, regenerate your health. Or even if you do die, you're brought back into another immersive world. And there's minimal loading screens and there's minimal um, yeah, ways at which the game stops and starts. It's even with the Wii U version of New Super Mario Bros. They don't have a save after every level. And I play the game significantly less as a result because it bugs the shit out of me. But um, you, you'd have to. And the one game we haven't mentioned that I feel somewhat obligated to mention to talk about is Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, which some people think of as the definitive N64 game. I don't agree with that, but the game itself which was released basically at the tail end of its life cycle, along with Perfect Dark and Conquers. From a graphics perspective, for all the talk of, of how much better a system PlayStation was, Majora's Mask is one of the most beautiful games in existence. And I don't even, I don't like it. I, I, I'm, 
punctuality is my biggest anxiety. I cannot be late. I hate uh, it, 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 it. It just it's, it's a personality quirk. And because there's the time crunch in Majora's Mask, I can't enjoy the world the way I want to. And it gives me anxiety. It's like playing Fallout, except not with the punctuality. Right. Thing. Yeah. I mean, and you kind of you saw the same issue with with Pikmin <laughs> on on. Yeah, uh, yeah, you yeah, run, yeah, the first you, one. You could lose, and it would suck. But you're right. Majora's Mask took the aesthetic and the art and the feel of Zelda at that time, and and just made it so rich and beautiful and colorful and just interesting. I mean, the 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 style and aesthetic and world that exists around Majora's Mask made Link and Zelda just so much more rich um, with its art. And, um, yeah, yeah I mean, it, I think you see a lot of that in, you see a lot of that in Twilight right. Princess, sort of the, the dark, if, if Ocarina of Time was, uh, the original Batman, then Majora's Mask was Batman Returns. Well said. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. You want to talk about, uh, wrestling games, Christian, which actually did get a, uh, on my little poll I did, not sort of an informal, um, WCW Nitro uh, was uh, a huge one. The WWF Attitude, the WrestleMania one. Um, wrestling games have always they've been kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. Always, I've I've enjoyed them. Um, it's a it's a format that translates itself well to video. Yeah, games. well, what I think of is like okay, well, think of generations prior where you have like Punch Out and Mike Tyson. You know, it it, it wasn't. The, the games weren't as, again, without the three-dimensional element, the games weren't nearly as fun or interesting. And then the N64 comes along and releases, you know, game after game for WWF or WWE um, or WCW or whatever. And, and they're all extremely popular. And, and, and I mean, they, they're probably up there with all of the best-selling games for, for the platform because uh, it, it really opened up a whole segment of games that I think is also lived on that the N64 pioneered. You have all of the, um, the boxing games and MMA games that are still popular today. And, and they wouldn't be what they were if it wasn't for WrestleMania 2000, <laughs> which is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I think about the only other game that I would really uh, throw in the mix as, as coming near that, kind of influentialness would be uh, the Dreamcast Rumble to Rumble Boxing, which again was more of an arcade-style game. So with the N64 uh, and the, the PlayStation version, you had these rosters of basically the whole company versus, you know, you'd get like five or six choices for a uh, arcade game. And it was at the perfect time, too, because wrestling with the Attitude Era mm -hmm. and just the 90s, the Monday Night Wars, were so big that finally we had a game system that could try and encapsulate all of those egos. And it would have been fascinating to see some of them come into even like to see the undertaker. Oh in my gosh. How awesome would that be? Well, another thing that I wanted to mention too, and we're, I'm glad we're touching on it is that some of these games allowed you to go deeper into your interests than what the other mediums could, could offer. So what I, what I mean is like with GoldenEye, oh, yeah, totally. you know, you, you didn't pay attention 
as much to each of the individual steps as the movie progressed. Yet when you play the game, it breaks it out into these different levels and you're paying attention to each task that needs to get done in order to accomplish the mission. The same thing that can be said about Tony Hawk, where like you had skateboarders that were no names now since suddenly become sensationalized. Uh, Star, what's that? Bucky Lassick. Oh, Bucky, yeah, of course, yeah, Bucky, Bucky Lassick. Yeah, becomes a big deal. <laughs> uh, Rodney Mullen, the the wizard himself. Uh, the other one I would say that did it well, and you mentioned yeah. it earlier, would be Star Wars. Like, you know, Shadows of the Empire. You could go deeper. Pod racing. You went deeper than what the movie did and and it's it's a wonderful yeah. thing that you know i think any any console you can say allows you to do but some of these n64 games did particularly well and i've I've seen a couple threads on twitter and i've talked to some people recently especially uh about the decline you know this this happened probably up up really through the ps3 xbox 360 era but you don't see a ton of movie tie-in games anymore and that's not like the biggest loss in the world on a broader scale, but a lot of those games are really fun. And a lot of them really did allow you to pursue uh, your fandom in a way that most other mediums didn't. You'd have like basically like uh, comic books or um, you could read about them in magazines. But the, the era of um, these online communities that just fostered this love didn't really exist so you could kind of go into these immersive worlds and uh have all that fun for yourself and with star wars they they did so many great the n64 star wars games are phenomenal uh rogue squadron and rogue squadron there was kind of a spinoff of it when episode one came out it was called star wars episode one battle for naboo it had a better storyline than the phantom menace it's a very good storyline and it's a very fun game um, you you fly around and it's mostly sort of space battle uh, or, or ship battle, but some of it's on land combat. A uh, lot of fun. Shadows of the Empire, uh, obviously great. Episode one racer kind of took F Zero. Uh, they were sort of similar in the in the intensity and the speed of the game. I always uh, I I love those. I have the pod racer on dreamcast also and it's fun but it feels a little weird for, and the the uh episode one racer was one of my first games for nintendo 64 yeah. so i always love it i mean we you know something that i think is is clear too is like not only are we getting less and less movie centric video games but i think maybe even and i don't know somebody might disagree with me to some extent sort of sports centric video games might have tipped i think the 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 clear counter to that would be like you know fifa is is still doing very well um but it feels like it is tipped uh, in, in right, some though. in uh, some degree it's not nearly as sensational um there there there's no major mlb the only mlb franchise that has any respect anymore is uh the show which is playstation only but um there's no there's no 2K anymore. I'm not even sure there are two separate. There used to be the uh, EA version of NBA games, and then there was the 2K. I, I think they may just be down to one, but you don't see any of the um, like NHL hits like for the GameCube, the Super, uh, the PlayStation 2 era, um, all those sort of fun sort of tertiary style games. Yeah, you definitely you see a lot fewer sports games. And uh, yeah, I mean, you look at 
GoldenEye, it, it, it is the pioneer first-person shooter game, and that's the only style of game that has the same level of sensationalism um, as compared to these other games that you look at um, for the N64. It, I mean, it, it's it's everything that the N64 did is still, I think, very relevant today, but it's too bad to see some of these different style of video games or, or you know, just general themes to them kind of drift away. Um, although, how great would it be if Disney took all of its Star Wars money and, and sunk it into an incredible AR or VR storytelling <laughs> version of Star Wars? I would, oh, yeah. that would be fantastic. I would love to see, like, something on the scale of Knights of the Old Republic again. There's there's a game that's been hyped that's coming out, but um, the last one they put out for... Uh, PlayStation mm-hmm. 4 Battlefield Battlefront 2 which is they've there's already been a Battlefront 2 but that's beside the point uh they reboot I don't even know what the fuck they, it, uh EA put it out and it, it was immediately swamped with criticisms of uh the loot box which it did away with and then brought back but it's a stupid game I've played it a lot it's kind of entertaining uh I like any any big fighting game that I can be competent at even when I'm high as shit um which is basically that, and, and uh, I play Battlefield Five a lot. Just out of, it, <clears throat> you never have that satisfying feeling finishing a game or finishing a, a, a level of Battlefield as you would from like navigating the Water Temple of Ocarina of Time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, it would be amazing to see somebody take a uh, story-based single-player game immerse yourself in a world as rich as something like a star wars and then put that on top of one of the new upcoming sort of platforms for video games uh, there, there is potential there um to kind of bring back that era of story or that that type of storytelling into sort of a modern video game world but um you know unfortunately i think a lot of these styles of games are kind of kind of over well, you 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 hit it on the nail earlier when you just brought up how the you know era of uh, uh, taking any any collection of game of console gamers, putting aside the PC people even, but just taking a handful of console gamers and getting saying like, oh, what's the last like ten games you've been playing, and getting something resembling a cohesive list. Uh, we're certainly past that. We're past the era of consoles being one-stop shops for all sorts of genres people i mean nowadays people who are uh serious gamers tend to have uh if they don't have all three of the new ones they'll have the nintendo and then they'll have one of the playstation and the xbox but even i was looking because xbox systems aren't really that expensive i don't have an xbox one i don't particularly want one and i looked and you get some bundles for like a little over a hundred bucks which is nothing but they had so many, like, they had so few first-party games that were exclusive that I was like, why, why? I don't care that much about playing Xbox 360 backwards compatibility. I don't even, I don't need this thing. And I'm a huge, I love collecting consoles, and I'm like, eh, I don't care. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, unfortunately, too, just the console, consoles are done. Uh, I mean, I, I have a hard time believing 25 years from now, people are going to want to, 
to purchase more and more hardware like that, uh, dedicated hardware for for video games when you can you can get it from other computing devices, mobile, your your basic home computer, whatever you use. Well, if you see, yeah, if you see what Fortnite's doing to a lot of them, that's certainly uh, interesting to think about. Uh, the The reception to the PlayStation Five uh, releases, or the also the Xbox One. Um, not only do I think are people not really ready, I don't think people really want that. Yeah, I'm not that excited for it. And I I play place I I do play my PlayStation. I like the ability like the the ability to put it into rest mode. I just like because I turn the thing off the next day I pick up and I'm literally right back where I started and that's fun but um it I I I don't care about a PlayStation 5 I'll get one eventually I suppose but um it it the the wow factor I mean when when GameCube and PlayStation came out and it was all of that it was like so exciting to think about which one were you going to get and the few people who bought the Dreamcast were very upset because it was a killed before its time. I, I love Dreamcast, but um, N64 is definitely where my heart truly belongs. We did a um, a two-part, massive two-part on the post-Genesis era of Sega, and it's fascinating, but no system really had this all-encompassing library like the N64, and you're right, it's something that we're not going to see again, but it's why podcasts like this... Uh, episode are so fun because there's just so much i feel like we captured the zeitgeist of 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 why this why people cared about this thing and then also simultaneously just scratched the surface of it yeah yeah no i think you could certainly go deeper um yeah i mean i think the the only the only possible piece of technology that could kind of bring back this uh, a platform as cohesive as the N64 or resemble something as cohesive as the N64 platform would be if there was a really cheap AR VR combination sort of technology that came out that allowed you to immerse yourself in your living room with other people and there was one topic that you brought up yesterday that didn't get breached um which was the idea that um N64 was like a kid, a kiddie console, and there was no gritty games. I think the games were all mentioned. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, right, yeah. I mentioned that in passing. It, it it's interesting to think about how Nintendo is now kind of regarded as the kiddie console. Uh, people people don't well from a hardware perspective, it, it's less powerful than the other two, obviously. But um, also just from the a lot of games will come out for Xbox and then PlayStation, but not Nintendo and, and way even way even more so nowadays than even I mean, you you'd get plenty of games that would come out for Xbox, GameCube and PlayStation 2, but now very rare to see them all three. But um, it was a system that did care about older fans. Uh, Nintendo's bread and butter will always be its family friend, friendly image, but um I mean, I, I I think about what like what what PlayStation's culture is right now. I I don't know who their mascot is. I mean, they I I've criticized I've criticized in other podcasts that I thought it was a mistake that they didn't immediately kind of buy Spyro and Crash and bring them into 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 the house immediately and have them be their official mascots. But um, the the gaming culture of the N sixty four is not really going to be replicated, which is why it makes for such an interesting topic of discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
it, it definitely has a family friendly image, but I mean, it's, it also has Goldeneye, right? It's like the, one of the first really, really strong first person shooters. And then it has, you mentioned, uh, Conker's Bad Fur Day. I mean, Perfect Dark, the Mortal Kombat series. I would also say, you know, there were things like even subtle things like cruising USA <laughs> had like half naked women walking around in yeah. it. And, you know, there are plenty of exceptions to N64's sort of family friendly Turok would be another important one to mention, I think. Um, oh, it, yeah. It, they, uh, yeah, because it is. Man, Turok should come back. <laughs> or, did it ever come back? Did someone try to re-release Turok? Um, I think they've tried. You know, there was a game called Ark, like Survival or Survival Evolved or something that was kind of dinosaur based. Um, that that got a release on Switch after it had PlayStation and Xbox, and I don't think people liked it. The mm. Switch version, at least. I yeah, I mean, it's also probably a little, uh, probably not as like, um, you know, culturally sensitive either to like put native americans alongside dinosaurs and <laughs> it's just there's something about it that just doesn't seem particularly politically correct <laughs> it's so ridiculous that it's, yeah, it's maybe I mean, kind of hard to, to block too much at but you know it sounds uh weird to equate like sort of uh color with uh gay things but um just as a as a as a queer gamer i um when, if I if I if I like thinking to myself I want to play a gay game I go and I play N sixty four which is it's weird to think about it also as the the family friendly game but just the color the wh- wackiness it seems like like it was uh, written to be kind of very yeah happy. yeah it, but game. in like the most wonderful way I mean <laughs> like Kirby oh, games Yoshi Story Banjo like all of these characters are just. So ridiculous. So many means many of them defy genders. Like many of them, you you can't really place them, uh, you know, in in today's society according to our norms, just because they're so ridiculous. Uh, People wonder if Kirby is a top or a bottom, and and, you know the debate continues. You know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's definitely like. uh, I'm you know I'm just happy that we made it this far into the podcast without without diving into. that kind of stuff because you could totally it's a lot of uh a lot of uh you know donkey kong and diddy kong were definitely in a in a gay relationship yeah and the fandom surrounding uh bowsette these days has only gotten more and more perverse (laughs) it's true i mean i always wondered bowser and peach that's an interesting uh interesting pairing but um that I that's a rabbit hole. I maybe you know I like the rabbit in Mario. I'll just take his hat, and not not talk about his sexuality. <laughs> as tempting as it may be, but I mean, let's be real. Bowser was the sub. <laughs> uh sure, sure, sure. We'll call it that. Yeah, he probably was. He probably who was Bowser Junior.'s mother? Uh, that's a good question. A Koopa, maybe. He doesn't really affect. <laughs> yeah. One of those guys with the goggles, the wizard. Oh yeah, the glasses. Maybe the guy that floats around on a cloud. Oh yeah, yeah, the hammer yeah. one. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, it's it's also just interesting with the N sixty four. Just the I see a lot of 
with 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 Super Mario Odyssey and Breath of the Wild on Switch, um, both of them getting really well. Other Mario's have gotten a high accolades, like Galaxy Mario uh, Mario Mario Super Mario Galaxy. Yeah, that was the name of the game for Wii. I don't know why I'm blanking on that. Um, they were popular, and it it makes me kind of the innovation and the color scheme and all of that. They feel very born out of the N64 era. Absolutely. So it's interesting to see it kind of live on in Nintendo kind of they went into their era of motion incorporating motion and everything and they still are but they seem to be kind of once again looking at the my biggest complaint with the Wii U which we'll focus on in an upcoming episode is is its lack of platforms and I don't need lack, lack of plat, 3D open-ended platformers and um that's something that the N64 really really did well and uh I think that's probably a uh, good note to end yeah. on. Do you uh, do you have anything else that you wanted to add? No, I mean I, I, we we all start and end at the same place, which is that this is to me the greatest console of my generation. It holds so much nostalgia. There's so much that you could say about it. You could probably have an entire podcast series um, all focused around the N64 because of because of what I see as its greatness. But um, yeah, we can certainly leave it there. Well, it it you could go on and on and on about the multifacetedness of the N64, all the ways it was groundbreaking, all the genres it appealed to, to all the all the Koopas we left behind, um, all the worlds we explored, <laughs> all the blisters on our palms. <laughs> All the gin and tonics I consumed while I screamed at people that they better not stab me in the fucking back during Mario Party that I'd be coming for them. <laughs> um, all of that is just, it's such a beautiful system. I, I There's no system I speak about like the N64. And I love my Neo Geo. I love my Dreamcast. I love my toys. But the N64, it, it as a child, it spoke to me on just such a level of, uh, here's the future, and we're so happy you're a part of it. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, I wanna I wanna thank Christian for coming on. This is a pod, this is a episode that I'd wanted to do for a long time, but then the the Dragon Show came, and uh, all of the ideas. There were all these people I reached out in, in February about coming on my podcast, which was supposed to launch in February, and then it didn't launch till the end of March, and then the Dragon Show happened, and um, we had to talk about it. But now the Dragon Show is over, and Christian doesn't really watch that show. Uh, he probably hates Sir Jorah, though, just for continuity. Do you like Sir Jorah? I can care less. I don't know. I, I appreciate being on the show. Uh, it certainly was a pleasure to talk about something that I've wasted an <laughs> enormous amount of time uh, immersing myself in. I, I can't knock Game of Thrones because I, I think people you know, have wasted an enormous amount of their time by immersing themselves in that, right. and there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's just not for me. But yeah. All of our listeners, we 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 appreciate you for sticking with Game of Thrones. And uh, Game of Thrones is great, but fuck yeah. Sajora. That that was the that was totally the, couldn't agree all, more. We all hate him. <laughs> I know all the reasons <laughs> why. I don't have to say them to you. <laughs> sure. Um. Anyway, thanks again to Christian, and thank you for listening. We have uh, we like doing our video game podcast, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.